Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Corinna Hawks. Uh, Dr. Hawks has a PhD in environmental and ecological geography from the University of London. She's worked at the World Health Organization, has written very influential reports on food policy, and uh, has spent time recently at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. So, Corinna, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, I'd like to talk about global food policies. We in America tend to think about America more than other places, but lots happening around the world and has happened around the world over a number of years where different countries have taken action on various issues related to diet, nutrition, and obesity. What were some of the early things that happened and where did they, where did they happen? Well, um, most of the action on this issue has taken place in the United States and in Canada, in Australia, and in, um, in the European countries. But uh, we're also seeing action being taken by um, some developing countries. And um, interestingly, one of the issues that um, I, I could say caught the imagination um, in, uh, of the developing uh, governments in developing countries was the issue of the presence of soft drinks and, and candy in schools. And uh, quite early on, um, the city of Rio de Janeiro and, um, and, uh, and Malaysia, the country of Malaysia, actually introduced some restrictions on the availability of those uh, foods um, in schools. And I think it's a sign of how um, important that, that issue is. And it has actually caught on a lot around 30 countries since then, uh, mainly in the European Union, uh, but in other places as well, including countries such as, as South Korea and Hong Kong and, and others have, have taken that issue on and do restrict those products in schools. So if there were, if there were one policy arena where there's been the most activity it would be the schools or something. I would say it, w it was the schools. So another important area has been <coughs> nutrition labeling. Mm -hmm. um, one of the um, issues around nutrition labeling is that it was originally introduced as a means of providing information to consumers and ensuring fair trade. So if there was a claim on the label that the consumer would be able to, to verify that that claim was correct. But what's been happening over the past um, decade has been a shift in nutrition labelling from a provision of information to actually a health promotion tool. And that means it has to be mandatory. So we now have more and more countries making nutrition label mandatory. Uh, Brazil was an important leader in this area. And as a result of Brazil making nutrition label mandatory, um, the, its surrounding countries also made it mandatory. And uh, so we're seeing an increasing number of countries with mandatory labelling. And we're seeing an increasing number of countries who want to do the front-of-pack labelling. Um, industry has also taken that issue on, and there are some debates about what the best form of front-of-pack labelling now, now is. So could you explain that a bit more? What, when you're talking about front-of-pack labelling, what are you referring to exactly? I'm talking about um, a kind of graphical label that rather than having to turn around the package and peer at a very small writing in a nutrition facts panel, that when you approach the food product, you can immediately see it, a, a graphic. So that could be... Um, um, a box containing um, the information of the amount of, of saturated fat in a product, for example, or calories. Or it could be, as uh, the official British government um, guidelines suggest, um, a kind of traffic light approach with uh, red, uh, yellow, and, uh, and green um, indicating high, um, high levels of nutrients. Was the British government the first one to... Um 
take take charge with this and it create was. a system. Yes. So yeah. ex- explain the British system, if you will. How, do, how does it work? Well, um, what happens is uh, that the the, the 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 company or the retailer, the food manufacturer or the retailer. Um, it, it can place on the front of the packet a red if the amount of uh, fat, sugar or salt is above a certain percentage um, and a green if it's below a certain percentage. And it includes all of those three. And the idea is is that consumers can say, ah, I'm, I want to avoid fat, I'm not going to buy this product, I'll buy, I'll buy something else. Okay, and is that a mandatory or voluntary system? It's a voluntary system simply because uh, the UK is governed by European law on this matter. And so what's the compliance of the industry with this government suggestion? That um, many companies do do it, but uh, many companies do not. Many of the large companies and many of the large retailers do not do this. So, Does it fall out as you'd expect that the companies that are selling the things that might have the most red marks on them are the least likely to do it? Um, you, you could say that because the food manufacturers, the large food manufacturers, have adopted an alternative method which they prefer. Okay, let's return to what you were saying before about you, you led off by talking about the countries that are doing the most mm-hmm. with regard to food policy. And you mentioned the UK, you mentioned Australia, mm-hmm. United States, and several others. So those, those are the developed countries. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the situation in developing countries? Developing countries are increasingly developing uh, roadmaps and strategies um, on um, diet-related chronic diseases and or obesity. Uh, this is being pushed by the World Health Organization, who are trying their hardest to encourage this. Um, but um, it's still very limited. The capacity is limited. The priority is limited. So most of the work that's been done so far is in countries you can hardly really call developing countries anymore, like like South Korea and and, and Hong Kong and, and the, the the wealthier countries. But then you do have strategies that are being developed in China and India and so on. But with the other national priorities, it's very difficult um, for them to really give a lot of weight to this issue. But I think increasingly the cost of, of and the problem of, of obesity and, and related diseases is uh, the, the information about that is getting is, is getting across. And so I think countries will continue to develop um, more and more strategies. And um, what I see in my work, in my, the surveys that I do, um, is an increasing desire by health, by ministries of health to work on this. In Latin America, for example, more and more in countries, Mexico, for example, a very serious problem, just um, released a new strategy. Argentina's doing work. Chile is, um, has, has got a draft law. Colombia recently passed a law on obesity. So I think the Latin American countries are coming up there and probably will be uh, the next set of leaders in, the, in, this, in this area. But I, I, I see frustration in the ministries of health that I talk to, that they want to do more, they're very worried, but they haven't yet quite got the political support that they need to, to do what they want to do. Uh, you know, the, these, some of those countries are in the position of perhaps being able to stem the tide of these problems before they get too terribly severe. But then you have the, the catch-22 where the countries don't pay attention until the problem becomes very severe. That's and it sounds right. like that's the stage we are at now with many of them. That's right. Another example of the Pacific Island countries where rates of obesity and diabetes and related diseases are very severe. How high? Um, I, uh, very high. <laughs> I mean, that's my, my you yeah. know, 60, 70, 80 percent of people. Yeah, that's right. Some of right. these countries are overweight. That's obese. right. Um, and they are small countries, but, but nevertheless, 
um, uh, they're countries that are really facing a lot of problems in this area. And it's been relatively recently that, for example, Fiji and Tonga, French, uh, French Polynesia, these are countries which have introduced restrictions on uh, the foods available in schools. They've set nutrient standards. They've restricted soft drinks. Um, but they're already facing, um, they've already undergone a deep cultural change in their diet that's going to be very difficult to reverse. You know, you have a view of, of the world seen with respect to few policy that I think few people do, so it's really nice to get your input on this. I'm very interested in how the food industry uh, seems to be responding around the world, around the world to countries taking on these food policies that may affect the way they do business, like, for example, branding things in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, the, the history has been that industry has ignored these things for a long time because they never felt that these public policy policies were a threat and there really wasn't any hope of implementing them. Uh, then they fought them in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then once they found that they were inevitable and government was going to introduce things, like menu labeling was an example, mm-hmm. then the industry plays along and actually goes looking for national legislation that might preempt things that they really don't like in states or cities. Mm-hmm. Is there any evidence of that type of thing playing out in other countries? Um, I think that's probably the trajectory that that's being followed. Um, um, what's clear, I think, though, is that the food industry is trying to to do things before they become an issue. So, for example, on the labelling, as I mentioned, in Brazil, for example, they have the the, the front-of-pack label that they like, that the industry likes. Uh, and I think so, in, and just in case anybody mentions the traffic light labelling, which they don't like, they'll be able to say that's not necessary because we have a, a system in place. So they're, they're, they're trying to learn from what's been happening in, in Europe and, and the United States to preempt. Um, regulation, regulatory activity. Uh, uh, but the, the most important things, I think, are, are that that's where they see the markets. And so um, the United States, they're still in a lot of differentiating, adding value, trying to create more products and innovate. But when, re- when you're looking at real market growth, it is in the developing countries. And so they're aggressively pushing their products um, and growing their markets in those countries. Um, and the concern, of course, is that that will export obesity from the United States to these other countries. And um, they also are, as in, as in um, the United States, uh, they, they lobby aggressively against any interference on their behavior. And as companies, they're often, they're often, their corporate um, standards are often very high. Um, and so this makes them popular to, to the national governments. They say these are well-functioning companies, they pay well, they, the, their food is safe, it's of reasonably high quality, um, and um, they provide jobs, they provide economic stimulus. So then um, when someone in the Ministry of Health says, hey, how about we regulate them, it doesn't go down very well at, with national governments. And you can see this is a genuine dilemma, it's genuinely very difficult. This may not be a question that you could answer, but I'd just be curious about your impression, if you have one on this. If you take a company like Pepsi or Coke or, Mm -hmm. you know, even some of the fast food companies, they offer a range of products. And when they go into the developing world, is there any sense of what among the portfolio products they're pushing most aggressively? So, for example, in countries like India and China, if you take PepsiCo as a as a company or Coca-Cola, you know they they have beverages that range from full sugar things mm-hmm. to juices and diet beverages and things like that. Is there any sense of what exactly they're pushing most aggressively in these kind of countries? 
Well, there's no question that each company will push its core product. So that's going to be Pepsi pulling its full, full carbonated uh, beverages um, and Kraft pushing its array of cookies. Um, they, these are uh, McDonald's pushing its burgers. That, that Their core products are always going to be core products for those mm. companies. However, what we're seeing in global food markets in general is more sophistication in, in marketing. Um, and more sophistication in, in trying to reach audiences, which means more niche markets and more differentiated markets. So that means that the food companies are much better now at saying there's this group of people and they, there's, there is a greater awareness of health um, and, um, and that this group of people isn't going to want this full sugar beverage. So they do go in and they also market the products which they consider to be better for you, which they consider to be healthier. So it's by no means a question of that they only push their core mm-hmm. products. That, that's not the case. Um, in Brazil, for example, among the middle and, and upper income groups, there is a, a, a high awareness of, of, of healthy eating um, and um, a high degree of possibility that the food companies can enter the markets and be successful in those markets by um, branding their products as healthy. So it's not uh, in the United States, I think these companies started out with very specific products and stayed with those products and then differentiated. In in the developing world, they go in with a whole range of products. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your global view of this. As I said, few people have a sense of what's happening around the world as you do. So I very much appreciate you joining us and sharing that with us. Thank you. So our guest was Dr. Corinna Hawks, uh, expert on global food policy issues. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other resources that we have, a free email newsletter that gets dispatched monthly, and of course a list of the other excellent visitors that we've had record podcasts. Thank you.